Tiffany Brown, and I'm a wife, mom, attorney, and founder and CEO of Gillis Education, a small but mighty company with big ambitions to change the country's education landscape for the better. I am a longtime tutor and education advocate, and I love all things related to education law and policy. I'm all about making sure students are equipped with the tools they need to have a positive academic journey within the classroom and outside of it. I also help parents understand how they can contribute fully to their children's academic success. Ed Insights provides insightful information regarding education. Whether you're a parent, educator, law or policymaker, join our community and share this podcast with a friend. And today I am super excited to speak with Lauren Allen. Uh, We met a couple months ago and I knew she would be perfect to talk to, to sit down and have a conversation with about a very important topic, and that is special education advocacy. So the title of today's talk is Why You Need an Education Advocate Now. And again, it's a topic that I am super passionate about. I am, as you all know, Gillis Education provides tutoring services. And when we initially started, we would get calls reaching out for help with this special education advocacy process. What is the IEP process? You know, where do I start? Who can help me figure out, you know, the process for my child on behalf of my child? You know, my child's not getting the services that they need and all of that. So we um, definitely leaned into that and learned more about the process, about the challenges that students are facing and how we can actually help and make it a positive experience and, you know, actually pushing for people to get advocacy help, to get an education advocate, a special education advocate, whatever you want to call it, a person who is on your side um, advocating on behalf of you and your child. So again, I'm very excited to have Lauren Allen here. She is a former educator, she started um, a Black Mom's Guide to IEPs, and which I'm really excited to talk about. But I will pause and go ahead and let Lauren introduce herself. Tiffany, thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to really dive into everything special education advocacy. It really gets me excited. So thank you. Um, like Tiffany said, my name is Lauren Allen. I am the founder of A Black Mom's Guide to IEPs. And our mission is really to empower Black moms and caregivers through education, community, and resources. I wholeheartedly believe in the power of community, and that is what a Black Moms Guide is all about. We, um, I have a huge vision for the organization. We're starting right now with our Advocating for Our Babies um, speaker series, where we have special education experts come on, share their knowledge on a wide range of topics. Our Back to School series is going to be starting on July 27th, talking about behavior, and we'll be hearing from an ABA specialist. We're going to get into the nitty gritty. And so you can follow me, you know, like on all the social media channels where you can stay up to date. And I am just excited about this conversation on special education advocacy. 
Great. And I am so appreciative. I'm looking forward to learning from you as a former educator. Let's first start off by talking about this thing called a free and appropriate education. So people who uh, work in education who are either, you know, advocates or, you know, lawyers like me or like tutors like me, um, we have come across this term of art, right? Um, and so we know that students with disabilities are entitled to receive what are called, uh, what is called a free and appropriate education. Can you break that down and actually like tell us like what does a free and appropriate education mean? It's very vague, right? <laughs> but what does that really mean? Yes. So you may hear this called FAPE. Special education is known for all of the lingo. And so sometimes when you're at your school, they may say, oh, FAPE, FAPE. And you're like, wait, what is FAPE? It stands for Free and Appropriate Public Education. And there are really four components to it. And the first component is free. That means at no cost to the parent or caregiver. And the second one is appropriate. This is where some of the special education policies and laws can come into place because appropriate it's really defined based on the unique needs of the student, of the child. And this is where the parent may think one thing is appropriate, but the school thinks another thing is appropriate. And so you have to kind of come together to determine what truly is appropriate for the child. The next one is public. That means they're educated at a public school alongside their neurotypical peers and education. Not only are they receiving the academic supports, but they're also entitled to receive their related service provide, um, services, such as speech and language or occupational therapy and physical therapies inside the public education, a public ed like a public public school. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And so that is what you said about it being individualized, right? Every student is different. Every yeah. family situation is different. And I tell, you know, my clients and the students and parents that I work with, everything is, you know, individualized. So when we say an appropriate education, like you said, for one student, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's, that fits the bill for another student. And yeah. so when we think about, you know, students who may have you know, special needs, special abilities, and they may need extra, right? Or they may need something different. That's what we're referring to. We're referring to making sure that they have the supports in place that, you know, they're actually being catered to in a way individually so that their free and appropriate education is theirs. It's not mm -hmm. someone else's, it's theirs. And that can be a point of contention. And I do want to back up a little bit and just talk about, you know, having a child and, you know, thinking like, hmm, is something off here? Or is there something that is going on where they're not actually getting access to the education that they should be getting access to? Like, what should parents be looking for and how do they start that process of maybe initiating getting an IEP or a 504 or any other sort of like special education services if they think, you know, something is just not right? So all they have to do is request an evaluation. I recommend to my clients that you request this evaluation 
in writing. You know, you can also verbally tell your teacher, but as soon as a parent requests an evaluation, the school has to do its due diligence to um, get that student an evaluation. And there's so many different ways that schools do this. Some schools will say, oh, we're going to do um, an intervention process, um, which where they monitor the child for 30 to 60 days. I always recommend to my clients that that intervention period also takes place as a formal evaluation is done. And what I mean by formal evaluation, I mean a school psychologist is coming in and giving your child a set of tests that you consent to. You have to consent to these um, evaluations to determine their, um, their IQ levels, their functioning levels um, for like speech and language. Right. One of the things that I always recommend too is that early intervention is key. It is imperative. And so as soon as you notice something is not quite right, or even if you don't know, ask somebody, um, you know, reach out for help so that we can determine and get those interventions as soon as possible. Right. Because it may be nothing, right? Yeah. But it also may be something. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I preach that a lot of times. I, you know, just got off the phone with someone and I was telling them, you know, this, these services are here for you. These are your tax paying payer dollars uh, yes. going to the school system and you can take advantage of them and needing extra services, even for a period can yeah. be helpful. Maybe you, you may need it through 12th grade, but maybe you only need these special services or these accommodations for a couple of years and you, and you don't need it anymore. But I work a lot of times to try to, you know, erase that stigma of what we generally think of as special education that mm -hmm. you know, being labeled as not as smart as your peers or mm -hmm. being labeled as different. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll talk about maybe like integrated, most integrated settings in a little bit, but the, stigma around special education, um, particularly in the Black community, is something that I'm working and others are working to try to get over, um, that these services are for our children. And our children can take advantage of them and they can grow from them. And the idea is that they grow so much and they do so well that they don't even need it anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I also want to highlight and, and, and truly, truly underscore what you said about early intervention. A lot of students that come to Gillis Education for tutoring or for special education advocacy, mm -hmm. sometimes they're older and yeah. they're like older as in like fourth grade, fifth grade even middle school or high school. Mm -hmm. And when we do our consultation, we realize, whoa, they're missing like two, three whole grades mm -hmm. worth mm -hmm. of knowledge. Yeah. They need to, they need, they need services. They need an IEP. They need something to help them get back on track. They need extra tutoring, you know? And a lot of times if parents were to go ahead and get those services or reach out for help kindergarten, first grade, second grade, when, you know, you kind of can start to notice some things that are not quite right. They're not, you know, writing letters correctly, or they're not, they're a little behind in reading. You know, if they were to try to access those services at that age, it may be a little bit better for their student. 
And, you know, there's also like the mental health component that comes along with it. Yeah. A lot of times I have seen students who didn't unfortunately get the help that they needed. And now they're in middle school or in high school and they just cannot figure out why they're struggling so much. And yeah. it hurts their self-esteem. It hurts their confidence. And they turn to, you know, acting out or expressing themselves in ways that aren't so great. Yeah. But it really all boils down to, man, if they had gotten the help that they needed back in first, second or third grade, they may have had a different academic journey or a different trajectory. So that early intervention is so key. And so I'm so glad that you brought it up. And so going back to navigating the IEP process. So after mm -hmm. you requested that eval from the school and they come back and they say, eh, you guys, you know, no, they don't, they don't need special education services. Is there any way to appeal that or to uh, say, no, I got some, you know, I got a report from the outside that's saying, yes, they are diagnosed with this and they need this help. Like what are parents' options if they get, you know, a denial of IEP services? Yeah. So there is a checklist, right? You have to be within certain deviations um, in order to receive the services. And so if you are within that normal range, the school may say, oh, no, you don't qualify. There's certain things that parents can do. Parents are always able to get an outside evaluation. You can always request an outside ev evaluation from the school. And the school has to, you know, give a reasonable effort to look over that evaluation and take it into consideration. You can always move forward with more intervention services, you know, like maybe right now, um, you know, in your mind, in your heart, you know, something is wrong, but maybe right now they aren't displaying that. And so they, you can come back to the table and say, hey, let's get this evaluation done at a later time. And so I think just because you get that denial one time, you know, parent, you really just want to stay on top of the grades, stay on top of the kind of indicators that you are noticing. Anytime that you can, you know, get a doctor's note, get a note from an outside psychologist or psychiatrist, that just helps to strengthen your case on why your student may need an IEP. And sometimes they may not need an IEP and they may need like a 504 plan that can support them in different ways and but still allow them to have some accommodations and modifications. And so I think this is one of those things where it's really good to have connections with other people where you can reach out to your community and say, hey, what did you do? I know so-and-so went through this process, but because sometimes in the Black community, your best friend or your auntie may not even know that your baby is struggling in school. That's where that stigma comes in because we don't talk about it. And I think the more comfortable that the Black community gets with talking about learning disabilities specifically, you know, kind of like unseen disabilities, right. um, the more strategies and tools parents will have to really get the student what they need. Right. And that is, we're going to come back to that point about the unseen disabilities, because I, mm -hmm. especially with COVID-19 and I'm glad we're talking about mental health a lot more, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, so I'm going to come back to that point about, you know, how do we navigate these unseen disabilities uh, and how do we convince sometimes the school that, hey, they do actually have a disability and this is actually affecting their schoolwork. 
Um, but before we get back to that, what if services can't be provided at the school? What are the options um, that parents can pursue? In this instance, most school districts will offer some type of compensatory education where you can go outside of the school building to receive those services. And as the parent, you can determine if you want those services to kind of be in person or virtual. But if the student has services on their IEP and they're not being provided, they are owed those services. Right. And that's another thing that I really want to educate my parents about and the clients that I work with is that's an option. Compensatory uh, services, that's an option for you. If the school is not providing a free, appropriate public education, your child is entitled to that, right? And so there are ways to get those services that they're not uh, getting at the school whether it's being bused to another school that has those services, or like you said, getting speech pathology sessions outside of the school, you know, on weekends and you're paying out of pocket, they can reimburse you. Right. So there's, there's lots of different ways that, you know, you can make sure that your students are getting, or your children are getting what they need. And then there's another question about IEP goals not being met by a specified dates after you get evaluated after the child gets evaluated and you know they decide hey your child is entitled to an IEP they sit down and actually come up with the IEP and we can go through that process in a bit but there are specific i guess IEP goals right um, yeah. so the question is what if those goals aren't being met if the IEP has these yeah. um list of things that Johnny or Susan should be doing by this time and the IEP is not being implemented properly or maybe they're just not meeting the goals, what what are the options for parents? This is a great question. So um, you can go so many different ways. And so right. I'll answer in a few different ways. And so one of the things that I like to think about is it's all a trickle down. Like from that evaluation you are noticing the skill gaps. The evaluation is defining the skill gaps that the student has. And based off those skill gaps, you're gonna determine the IEP goals for the student. And so we need to make sure that those goals are in alignment with the evaluation. And so if they are in alignment with the evaluation and they're receiving proper instruction, they should be meeting those goals. If they're not meeting those goals, you you may want to take a look at the service hours. Are they receiving too few service hours? Where are the service hours taking place? Meaning the um, specialized instruction service hours, are they inside the classroom or are they outside the classroom? And I think also sometimes you may want to come back to the IEP table and take a look overall at the data, right? Why is the student not receiving the instruction? And data, I think it's a huge point. Always request to see that data. Hey, I noticed they didn't meet this goal. Can I see the trials? Right. Now pause because that's usually where people may be fumbling through papers or maybe like, oh, I'm gonna get back to you on that because yep. they may not have that hard data. And I think it's so imperative to have IEP meetings where you are looking at the data, where you are having the teacher or that LEA representative break down that data for you so you can understand why your child is not meeting the goal. Um, one of the things that I also like to recommend to my clients is 
you and you don't have to wait till that one year annual review meeting to find out that your child is not meeting the goals. I recommend you have a meeting at the beginning of the school year, the end of the school year, and your annual review so you can always keep a pulse on if they're meeting those goals. You should also be receiving a quarterly or end of advisory progress report where the um, written explanation should have a percentage on, hey, so-and-so is 70% towards meeting this goal, you know? And then you can pair that with a parent-teacher conference. And so there's a lot of different reasons why they aren't meeting that goal. But I think having intermediate check-ins um, will really help to make sure that your child is staying on track with meeting their goals. And all of what you said is why special education advocates are so vital. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize how vital we were until I actually started doing it <laughs> because <laughs> it's a lot of information. And parents, I'm a parent, you know, you're a parent. I have a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old and, you know, working and doing all of the things, right? Trying to take care of ourselves. It's a lot. There's a lot going on. And so if you throw on top of that, oh, now I need to also like manage the IEP process. I need to be on top of the data and I need to be on top of, you know, the progress monitoring. And I have to ask all the right questions in order to, to fight for these services. I didn't realize how difficult it really was for parents until I actually started advocating on behalf of my students. And so this is where education advocates can actually come in. Yeah. You can give us the IEP. We can read through it with a fine tooth comb mm -hmm. and actually point out, oh, okay, this goal actually kind of seems unrealistic, or maybe this goal should actually, you know, do a bit more, right? Mm -hmm. We can expect more of my child uh, and, and maybe we can change the language here. Maybe this goal isn't isn't specific enough. Yeah. Um, it's too vague. All of the the uh, all of my child's test scores are not listed in the IEP. Let's let's make sure that those are in there. Um, even the progress monitoring is something that I've had to like really like <laughs> check in on and ask for those writing samples or those math samples or those uh, data points to actually have the school back up their claims that the child is actually progressing the way that they should, because it is very easy to just pass students along. And that is what I see a lot of the times, unfortunately, in certain school systems, they just kind of check the box and say, okay, Susie is doing great with this 100% out of 100, you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He, she met her goal and I'm like, okay, well, let me see. That's great. That's great that she's met her goal. Can I see the samples that show that, you know, she's met her goal? And again, like you say, sometimes it's crickets. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm truly advocating for my student, I want to see the good, and the bad and the ugly so that we know yeah. how to adjust the IEP. So yes. I don't want to hear the fluff. I don't want to hear so-and-so is progressing if they're not really progressing because I'm all about building productive citizens. Yes. Productive adults. And so yeah. if they are not getting that free and appropriate public education and they are not progressing the way that they should, we need to know that. And we need to adjust the, the, you know, the parameters of their IEP to make sure that they are indeed excelling and that's okay. 
to 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 come back to the IEP say table and say, yeah. hey, this didn't work. <laughs> That's okay. That's actually what we want. You know, like let's sit down and talk about what's working and what's not working. Um, and so that is really where an advocate can come in. A lot of times I also see that just having an advocate at the table yeah. sometimes makes people just kind of get their stuff together. <laughs> a bit <more>. Yeah, <laughs> And it's, and that's horrible to say, but it's true. You know, there's a ton of kids that are not, you know, able to have advocates, um, advocates, you know, sitting at the table on their behalf and a lot of parents who are struggling through this process by themselves, but the ones who are able to obtain an advocate and actually have that advocate at the table asking questions, um, you know, asking for data, yeah. it becomes a little bit more official and it becomes a little bit more, you know, the teachers, they button up a bit and they say, all right, okay, let me make sure I get them these samples. Because at the end of the day, an IEP is a legal document yeah. and the school is held to that legal document. They're going to be um, held accountable if they are not following that IEP document. So um, yeah, you were going to say something. Yeah, I want to. I want to just say that, you know, getting a special education advocate, it does have a cost associated with it. But most states do have programs where you can reach out to whatever your kind of education agency is, and right. you can request someone to come to that IEP meeting with you. And I always recommend that. Don't go to an IEP meeting by yourself, even if you can't get an official advocate. Bring your cousin. Bring your aunt. You know, that way you are supported. Um, at the IEP table, a lot of emotions will come up and you may have this long list of things that you want to talk about that you want to get, but then you're, it's your baby. And so those emotions are going to take over and you can have that support person come in and help you out. Um, you know, make sure that all of your points are talked about because at the end of the day, or even at the end of the meeting, when you go back to the car, you may be like, dang, I was so sad. Uh, you know, I, my emotions just started taking over, but you didn't let the school know what you need for your child. You didn't let them know your kind of like your parent vision. Right. And that, and sometimes that is a missed opportunity to really set yourself up, set your child up for getting the correct services. And so that is why I just always recommend get an advocate or bring somebody with you. And that I'll touch on another value add for advocates, mm -hmm. taking notes. Like yeah. a lot of times, again, we're busy. Mm -hmm. um, parents have taken IEP meetings virtually at work or, you know, they may have an unconventional job where they are hairdressers or they're, you know, other service providers where they may actually have to tune into the meeting yeah. And, you know, they're not able to easily take notes. If you have someone there, again, if it's an advocate or someone else taking notes and then resending or yeah. sorry, sending those notes after the meeting, hey, team, just so I'm clear, this is what we discussed. These are our action items. These are mm -hmm. our, our next steps. That goes a long way, too, because, again, it holds the school accountable. And I know teachers and administrators, they already are doing God's work. They are working with our kids. They have a lot on their plate. And sometimes 
IEP goals or IEP, uh, you know, tasks, they fall off, you know, they, they sometimes don't get done. So having that, having those notes and having those action items in writing is one to hold people accountable, but to two, also a reminder, like, Hey, you said that you were going to do these things or, Hey, you said that you were going to make these tweaks to the IEP just so that we're all clear and making sure that the whole team is on the same page that note taking and just having that emotional uh, support there, that physical support, um, yes. also that emotional support, like you said, is is very, very um, important. What happens when the ball gets dropped? What um, should parents and advocates do? This is where you get your email writing skills up. You want to yes, send yes. emails. You want to send them with regular frequency. You want to start CCing people on the emails um, just so you can start forming that written track record, right? I always recommend, you know, you can have that great relationship. A lot of things can be said verbally, but you want to make sure um, all of this is being documented via email. Um, and, you know, you can start off with the case manager or the special education manager, but then eventually you, if it's still kind of not being solved, you want to start adding um, other district personnel to those emails. And this may be an instance where you need to connect with your local um, special education advocacy office or contact an advocate so that they can feel the urgency so that the school system can feel the urgency. Um, because, you know, we're, we're still kind of feeling the aftermath of COVID, but evaluations are still taking place, should still be taking place. Right. And I do uh, want to draw the line to sometimes you need an advocate yeah. And then there are certain instances where you may actually need to contact an attorney and <laughs> a law firm <laughs> that specializes in special education law. Um, you know, a lot of times, again, it might be expensive. Um, and there are opportunities where um, you can get that, you know, get those services pro bono. Um, mm -hmm. So the Children's Law Center, for example, um, does a lot of special education advocacy work for free when parents feel like they are not getting a hold of the right person yeah. or that the ball is being dropped. Um, and so advocates, you know, sometimes like me can be an attorney, um, but other times they're not attorneys, but, you know, they're just advocating on your behalf, but they're very familiar with um, special education law. But there are instances where, you know, you may need to have an attorney on the email and say, I've CC'd my attorney and you will see quickly how people start to move. <laughs> if, again, it's unfortunate, but it's like, that is um, the world that we live in sometimes where, you know, if somebody is um, thinking, you know, seeing that, you know, you're serious about this and there may be consequences, legal consequences, um, you can use, you can play that card. Um, even if you don't go through with the actual lawsuit, uh, <laughs> you just want to say, you know, and I've CC'd my attorney on this email. <laughs> COVID was really hard and it was hard for students with disabilities. It was hard for students without disabilities. It was hard for teachers, for parents. <laughs> it was hard in general. And so um, you mentioned that we're still feeling the consequences of COVID. What sorts of things did you see during the pandemic and 
what sorts of things are you seeing now where you feel like, man, the pandemic really messed students up and they really messed, it really messed up uh, the special education process for certain students? Yeah. So one of the things that I see is those students who were kind of like ending first grade, going into second grade, who are now approaching middle school, um, and they're just now being evaluated for special education okay. services. So they missed out on those services during their those key um, imperative elementary school years. <laughs> and so it's now like we're trying to play catch up, but we know that, you know, the brain is forming so many connections when they're younger. And so I think that that is one of the things that is, you know, going to be trickled down for kind of like that generation that missed out on those early elementary years um, because they were learning virtually. And we know learning virtually, you know, parents were doing the best that they could, but it was still really, really hard. Um, and so I, I have noticed that. And during the pandemic, I would say there was a technology gap for a lot of um, urban students. And so just like getting them online was a huge issue. And once we got over that, it was like, okay, now let's show up. Let's create this environment where you can actually learn through a computer screen, learn virtually. And so um, I think that that was a challenge. And on the other hand, I think there was a group of students where they thrived. Yep. <laughs> you know? And Thank so I, I, I just think... Yep. Um, we're just going to, it's going to be a really interesting case study. I'm sure people are already starting to do some research yes. on the COVID generation of kids um, because sometimes I'll just think, why is this, why is it like this? And I'll be like, oh yeah, COVID, it wasn't like this before. Right. And another, I think another impact is that it changed teaching. It changed the teaching profession. And now a lot of children don't have teachers. And so we're seeing even more gaps because someone who is not qualified is being a placeholder. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I completely agree with you that it, the pandemic was really eye-opening. Um, we saw the disparities. Uh, we saw the digital gap. Um, we saw uh, mental health gaps, right? Teacher shortages. A lot of people leaving the profession, unfortunately. Um, and again, that's going to, whatever's hitting everyone is going to hit certain populations harder. So if it's, yeah. you know, if, if the pandemic is affecting all students across the country, it's going to affect students of color, students with disabilities disproportionately. Yeah. And so we saw that, I saw that with my students. And interestingly, some of my students really thrived. So some of them, they, they didn't like being in school anyway. They didn't like the bullying and the teasing. They didn't like the social aspect of it. You know, they were just like, yeah, I'm good being home. I'm good. I can go on Google Classroom and see what I need to do. Check, check, check. And I'm done. I'm at home. And they did well. Yeah. But there were other students that had really needed that in-person instruction and especially those younger students you know yeah. in like kindergarten first grade second grade building those fundamental skills and so because again that those from zero to eight 
Yeah. Those are the magic years. Yeah. And so the babies that were home and trying to figure things out <laughs> on a screen, yeah. uh, you know, for two years, missing those fundamentals, we're seeing it now. We're seeing, you know, seventh graders who don't know their multiplication tables. And they're, you know, there's, they don't have, you know, necessarily like a, a learning disability or anything. They just yeah. are missing some fundamentals. Yeah. Uh, so we're definitely seeing that. Um, and we're dealing with the ramifications. Um, but it did also show us that what I was excited about is that, wow, there's all of these different tools. There's all of these um, technological devices mm -hmm. that we actually can be using more of even in the special education setting. So I have students who, you know, have processing disorders and yeah. They really do actually benefit from lectures or from, you know, classroom uh, lessons being recorded. Yeah. And they're able to go back and li listen to those recordings over and over again because they do have uh, trouble processing information. And so before that wasn't actually happening. You had to be in class and you were, you know, listening to the lessons uh, right in the classroom. But a lot of it was being missed. And so you know, them being able to access recordings and having, you know, being sick, but also being able to access a recorded lecture is really helpful. So there were some things that we, I think, can pull from the pandemic and keep. Um, but other things, of course, <laughs> like people being behind <laughs> is something that we want to um, address. And so I do want to turn to a black mom's guide to IEPs. And I am, you know, we talked about this a couple months ago when I first met you and I was so intrigued and I was like, oh my God, this is great. This is what we need, you know, the black community and specifically black moms. But can you tell us more about why you started a black mom's guide to IEPs and what its purpose is? Sure. So all kind of good ideas typically come to me when my phone is put away, I'm maybe in the shower, have a moment to myself. And I was reflecting on um, a situation that I had when I was advocating for uh, like a financially sound family, getting the runaround, a lot of just kind of like back and forth conversation. Um, and I'm familiar with the policies. You know, I know the lingo. I speak the language. And I thought to myself, if this is happening to me and this family, I know for sure it is happening to Black mothers. And thinking about just where I come from, you know, the mother of a psychologist, the, you know, granddaughter of a school teacher, my grandpa was a principal. You know, I have this rich history of, um, you know, just educators standing behind me advocating for me on my behalf, I knew that this is something that I had to share with the world. Um, I strongly believe that when Black mothers get together, we can really change the world. We can come together to fight the policies and the structural issues that place limits, place our children in a box. We can come together to dream the possibilities of what our children's you know, future can look like. 
And so I wanted to create this community, one, to open up the conversation on Black students with disabilities and specifically Black students who have IEPs so that moms can come and get the support that they need. The, the knowledge is vast, right? And you can read all the books, you can listen to all the podcasts, but you have to put that knowledge into action. And having a community behind you to really put all of that into action can really, really help change the trajectory of your child, right? We're not just thinking, okay, you know, Steve, he's in third grade, but Steve is going to be a grown man or Jasmine is going to be a grown woman. And we want them to be able to function in society, doing what they want, doing what they love. And so my, my dream is that a Black Mom's Guide to IEPs can really just be a community for Black mothers doing this can provide resources. And when I say resources, I'm gearing up to, you know, hopefully get some grants so that we can connect Black mothers to lawyers like you, to other advocates, to outside resources so that they can, you know, so there won't be a financial burden on them. And then with my last pillar, education. I am right now having the Advocating for Our Baby speaker series, connecting Black mothers with different um, service providers, special education experts, so they can come into the Zoom room, kind of similar like this, and ask those questions, get feedback on their situations. I was hosting one a few weeks ago, and it was a really great and powerful moment where one of the moms came off chat or came off mute and basically said, oh, I've been there. You know, everything that this um, expert is get telling you, that same situation happened to my baby when he was three. And now he's in second grade and he's so much better. There's still challenges, right? Um, but the mom grew in her empowerment and her advocacy skills. And it was a moment where that other mom was able to get poured into. She could see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so that that really is my vision for a Black Mom's Guide to IEPs. So. I love it because I am, I, and again, I told you when we first met that this is so needed. It's so needed because I feel like a lot of the clients that I work with, they do think that they're kind of going at this alone. And it's like, yeah. no, you're, you're not alone. Your nope. child is not alone. Yeah. The same questions that you have, guess what? Another mom asked the same exact question. Mm -hmm. Another dad asked the same exact question. Another student had the mm -hmm. same experience. And so, like you said, if we can come together and mm -hmm. learn from each other and know what questions to ask and know who our advocates are that we can lean on and build this community and get rid of the stigma, right? Mm -hmm. Get rid of that stigma of, oh, my child doesn't need services. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they're here for you. And they are really meant to make sure that your child grows up to be the most productive child, the most, uh, you know, civically engaged child, right? We definitely need that today. <laughs> you know, the child that is doing that, the child that grows up into that adult who, who is able to pursue their passion yeah. and live their life the way that it should be lived. And it all starts with education. It all starts in the classroom. It starts at home, right? Feeding that child the education that they deserve. And yeah. if we can get that in our heads versus the stigma of being labeled, then we can really be powerful. We can really like make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, 
And again, you know, having those advocates, having your um, support group to actually hold folks accountable. <laughs> that is that is the key. And, you know, sifting through all of the, the language and just really yeah. uh, making it plain for uh, moms and dads. But of course, uh, your organization is is geared towards those moms. Um, and, and why did you I, I know that you touched on it a little a little bit. Um, why did you decide to create a group specifically for moms and black moms? Yeah. I think because it's based on how I, my upbringing, you know, I, when I think about the church mothers, the aunties, the, the, you know, the blood aunties, but then also the aunties that are in the family, I just, you know, it's, it's been such a strong force in my life and, you know, how I raised my daughter that I wanted to share it with other moms. And I think, Black moms, when they come together, our experiences are so unique. Our experiences require, you know, sometimes that thought in the back of our head, wait, did this happen because I'm Black or did this happen? You know, and so I want a space where, you know, you can feel comfortable saying that, like, wait, did this happen to you or did this happen to you? And then we can come together to kind of solve those issues. And so I see a lot of different, you know, kind of communities and they are for everyone. And I believe those communities have a space too, but I do believe in the sacredness of spaces for black mothers, black caregivers to come together to talk about, you know, the nuances of what it means to be black in America and black in America having a neurodiverse child. Right. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of gender roles and gender norms, Mm -hmm. but I will say eight or nine times out of 10, the people that are reaching out to me for help or for assistance uh, with their child, it's the moms. <laughs> it's yeah. moms, right? And we can talk about, you know, how tide, the tide is changing with gender roles and gender norms. But statistically speaking, um, a lot of times, you know, for whatever reason, there's multiple reasons for this. But it is the mom that's in the room. It is the mom that's calling and asking for services or tutoring or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, advocacy and help with their um, with their situation. So mm-hmm. I think that it's a wonderful platform. I'm excited to be involved and to see where it goes and to help out in any way that I can. Um, I do want to go back to my point um, earlier about, and your point too, about these unseen um, diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked about COVID-19. We've touched on a little bit about uh, mental health issues in this country. Mm -hmm. And I know for some of my students who struggle with emotional disturbances, Mm -hmm. it can be really hard to advocate for certain things where the disability is not yeah. You, you can't see it. So you can't see anxiety. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you, you know, you can't see depression, yeah. you know, you see the effects of it, but it's, it's not, you know, someone's not in a wheelchair or, you know, someone's not suffering from, you know, allergies and, you know, those are physical things that we can see yeah. when it comes to, especially black children. I yeah. feel like, you know, making the case that their disability if it's anxiety, if it's depression or what have you, 
making the case that that is a real disability that needs to be addressed and that needs to have certain support and uh, certain uh, services attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, I just find it so difficult than uh, as compared to, you know, dyslexia or, uh, you know, one of the other, you know, conditions that are a little bit more uh, what you would, I guess, call typical or maybe yeah. even like acceptable. Yeah. Um, and so it's sad to see and it's sad to see how so many um, students actually, you know, got worse. Their, their mental health conditions worsened due to COVID and trying to make that case in IEP meetings that, hey, no, this is this is a real thing. This anxiety yeah. is actually stopping them from doing their work. This depression is having a debilitating effect on them where yeah. they cannot perform in the, the classroom as they normally would. You know, what can we do to actually make it plain to uh, people who kind of kind of just disregard emotional disturbances. Yeah. I want to start by pointing out that our counterparts, our white counterparts, they are receiving services for anxiety, depression, okay. and mental health illnesses. And I think that is a limiting something that the black community and you know black parents in general may not know that the student can receive services you know, whether it's to an IEP or a 504 for those types of disabilities. Um, and so I think that's where education comes in, right? Having the person on your team, your support, your support person being knowledgeable on how to um, show the data to the school, you know, how to show them how to basically collecting your own data, involving um, a doctor, a medical doctor to write notes and to show how um, this condition is debilitating to the student. And so I think this is one of those instances where you're going to have to, you know, really build up a case. And I often think that it doesn't even get to that point because of the stigma around mental health issues. And, you know, if, if you can really even receive services for mental health issues, we know that you can, but I think it's just like, that's a, a gap, right? Parents don't know that, right? And so they're just watching their child suffer, um, you know, and knowing that they're academically capable, academically capable of doing it, but, you know, that they may need some additional supports, especially when it comes to testing. The testing anxiety that students have, it, it's great. It's, it's a lot. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it, it is very real. And so I think that's something that on platforms like this, we have to just start talking about more. I think these conversations also need to start reaching the school level, like in team meetings or in staff meetings, we need to talk about how we are making sure um, that we are incorporating some social and emotional back best practices into our lessons. And then we're keeping a pulse on our students so that as the teacher, we can, you know, tag in the parents or tag in the school nurse or the counselor, you know, as we see these things arise. Right. And not just saying, oh, so-and-so is lazy yeah. or so-and-so is bad. I, I hear those terms all the time. Um, 
And it's like, no, we actually have an evaluation done by a psychologist that says this person is suffering from yeah. <laughs> this, this, and this. And this is how it's impacting their work. Yeah. And this is what we actually need to try. This is actually what we need to put in the IEP to make sure that Johnny or Susan can, you know, uh, cope with what yeah. they're what they're struggling with and, and actually come out better. Yes. Uh, so this is all so, so helpful. And I do want to, um, you know, end by, you know, on a strong note and on a positive note, um, yes. some success stories that you've had. So, um, you know, being an advocate, even being on the other side of the table and, and as the educator, what are some success stories that you've seen where advocates have been able to come to the table, help out a student and their family and really make a difference? Yeah. So I have been advocating for a family in Texas for, I want to say well over, it's going on three years, maybe even four years. I've kind of lost track of time. And she has, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing, but she has twin boys. And when I first started, you know, kind of coaching her, um, you know, I was doing everything. I was writing the letters. I was emailing the school. You know, I was providing her with, you know, different strategy sessions. And now her boys are in upper elementary and she'll send me an email. She'll be like, I should do this right. And I'm like, right. That's you correct. It, right. <laughs> <laughs> her grow in her own advocacy skills and her confidence when going to IEP meetings. Yep. I am just blown away. She took the time, invested in an advocate, you know, and it really has paid off because both of her boys, you know, they're doing well. And, you know, it's a testament to her for not giving up and saying, hey, I'm going to figure this out. And one of the things I do want to acknowledge is that that can be exhausting. That is a lot on top of, you know, parenting and on top of life, on top of our jobs, you know, but I think that she does see some light at the tunnel because she sees the academic growth. She sees the social growth in her children and she sees it in her own thought patterns. Like, oh, this is what I should do for this situation or this is how I can assert my voice in this situation. And I know that that makes her proud. And being her advocate, it also makes me proud. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, that being able to see the growth in the parents yeah. is, is something that is phenomenal. And, you know, you see them start to speak up during the meetings and ask, asking the questions that you would have asked, you know, a few <laughs> months ago. And it, it's remarkable. I have a similar situation where, you know, a student, you know, a, a number of problems in in the school system. He ended up switching schools. But I mean, I had the most positive response from his new IEP team. Yeah. Really willing to work with us. I mean, it was like night and day from his old school system. And the IEP team just kind of embraced him as he was, you know, flaws and all, as Beyonce yeah. would say. <laughs> and um, yeah. it, and it was beautiful to see. And it was also beautiful, like you said, to see the mom come from this place of just kind of like, what do I do? Like, yeah. who do I talk to? Like, I know he's a smart boy, but he, we just have these things that we're dealing with. And I cannot seem to get him on track. You know, fast forward a year later, completely different situation. Yeah. He's gotten some of the supports that he really needs. 
he's able to take breaks during the day. They, yeah. you know, the, the lessons are a little bit more structured to his, his liking. And, and there's just so many different things that you can do as a parent and so many different things that you can, you know, discuss and brainstorm with your advocate about what the education for a student looks like. Um, and that's one of the other things that advocates can really do is think creatively, yeah. you know, really think creatively about what, you know, supports look like, what they can look like for your child and tailored specifically to your child. Um, yes. And then watching them grow, watching them, you know, getting that individualized help and watching them grow, tracking their progress and and watching them grow. So. I think that this is uh, such a needed conversation. I could talk all day about this, but I won't. <laughs> One last word of advice for parents, please don't give up. Yeah, It's going to be difficult. It's going to get tricky sometimes, especially if you're working in a school system that, you know, doesn't, unfortunately, they don't want to do the work or they don't have the resources to do the work. It's going to get, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tricky sometimes, but don't give up. Keep fighting and advocating for your child because education is the most important thing that they can get and they can obtain in order to live a full life. So, you know, if you need help, reach out, reach out to us. Reach out. Um, yes. And I'll say, don't give up, get a community. Yes. Get a community that you can lean on that will lift you up. That will give you those words of encouragement that will write the email for you or with you. Right. <laughs> that is my biggest tip of advice. Don't give up, get a community. I hope you found this episode of Ed Insights insightful. Thanks for listening and be sure to connect with us online at gilliseducation.org. You can also find us on social media on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Pinterest, and YouTube. Just search Gillis Education. Take care until next time. <laughs>